Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme first and foremost by Peter Murphy. Peter is the founder of Cavendish and Gloucester Properties Limited, a property developer based in London and Hampshire. Peter, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Peter. Um, The purpose of this discussion is to establish first and foremost your take on leadership. So if we begin by taking that word leader aside and considering it in a bit more depth, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you and how it resonates on the whole. Well, I think uh, what it means is that somebody in most companies has to show the way forward. And it's better if you bring most of your senior people with you. So it can be a shared leadership, but most people need to be led. Most families need to be led by the the wife and the mother. It's a very normal thing in civilization that there have to be leaders. And leaders have to make unpleasant decisions sometimes. I think that's absolutely right, um, in that leaders do have to make uh, difficult decisions. You're right. Uh, Peter, you were going to continue. Please do. Well, I was going to say, sometimes you have to get rid of people, good people, because they're too expensive or other reasons. Mm. It's not always because they're not good enough. Um, unfortunately, one of my businesses today recorded the death of somebody, a man in middle age who died overnight, and there was no expectation of that. So the man in charge there has, has to be very aware of the sensibilities of the man's family, etc. Mm. That is leadership. You have to take the hard decisions sometimes. You may have to suffer when people don't even realise you are. I and think this that's... Virus, mm, mm-hmm. This virus, in my case, led to many things. One, it said, you don't want to lose any jobs. Two, it said got to make sure that there's a business at the end of it you've got to keep the banks happy and we've achieved most of that and we did it by a number of ways and one of those was to say well what do we do now to make sure that we come out of it okay we're not a big company we're a sort of a large small company if you like and we decided that we'd keep all our building jobs going we had a beautiful letter for Alex Sharma the business secretary Expelling the virtues of the construction industry it was a really sensible letter, and he went from the smallest to the largest. So everybody there in the company had a copy of this letter when they were travelling, and if the police stopped them, they showed it to them. And I think he achieved quite a lot by writing that letter. Mm. We kept all our jobs going. We kept, uh, as we built houses, we, we had a target on several sites to get the show units ready for sale by the end of the lockdown and we are furnishing two show houses this week so we're quite quite close um, but people want targets at the same time if, if you're if you're in a bad situation you need targets and we needed to get rents in to keep the banks happy mm. things like that so leadership is often about uh, charting the way forward when mm. people need it charted for them 
I think you're absolutely right in saying that, uh, Peter. And you made a really good point earlier on that when leaders suffer, they almost have to put their suffering aside for the benefit of uh, those around them to make sure they're continuing to safeguard their sort of mental health and well-being. Because yeah, you and they got ulterior motives. In my own case, my wife accused me of wanting to get the COVID virus. Far from the truth. So you know, people have all got their own little ideas, and they don't look at the bigger picture. And I'm afraid. So you just have to look at the bigger picture. In the case of a small company, it's not that big, but uh, you still have to look at so many things and to keep the banks happy and know that you can borrow money at the end of it and continue and the workforce can continue. You mm. have to be aware of all those things. And when I first started, I can remember arriving on the plane and knowing that the builders had not been paid that week because the staff couldn't be bothered. But I always bother. I always want to make sure that everybody's paid. Because they have got to spend their money on their mortgages and their food and their children and their wives, etc. So at a small level, it's even more important. And uh, let's face it, very few people get any training in leadership. I've read a lot of books. I've been to courses. I have, as I mentioned to you before, I'm an advocate of MBWA, which means management by walking about. You've got to be with your staff. You've got to just nip into meetings for five minutes and let them know you're interested and learn and maybe you'll be able to give them some pointers. Mm. But all the time you're looking and seeing and relating to the people even subconsciously. I think you're completely right. Mm. I think there's real merit in showing that you do have a presence there and almost a kind of on an equal footing to people in the sense that you're accessible, they can go to you. Because as a leader, you've got to be the person that they can look to for direction and for inspiration and for reassurance as and when they need it, particularly during a crisis such as this, because as a leader, that is your role. Um, Interestingly, Peter, though, when you're the person who is the leader at the top of the business, as you've already said, you have to put sort of your own issues to one side to make sure that you're benefiting those around you. So when you sort of need that little bit of inspiration yourself and there's nobody sort of above you to refer to as it were where do you tend to look to for that god Mm. god so get that mm, so your inspiration comes from your faith you'd say pardon so your inspiration comes from your faith in your case in many cases in many ways yes And would you say that that's been a real major driver in your response to this sort of crisis as a business as well and sort of managing your way through all of this? Yes. (laughs) But also, you know, it just gives you more of a sense of right and wrong sometimes. Mm. If you're in a situation, you try and find the right way to deal with it, not the wrong way. Things like that. Exactly right. And there's been a great deal of debate as well around the leadership that's come from the government during the crisis, of course, mainly in terms yeah. of the clarity and transparency of safety guidelines in terms of businesses continuing to continuing to operate safely and those that are opening up again, how they can certainly do so. Have you been satisfied throughout this that you've understood fully what's been expected of you and that continues to be the case? Or is it more complicated than that? I mean, I think that Boris is a very bright man. I think he was very clever. He got himself elected leader. He got himself elected prime minister. And then he had to step out of an area that he knew everything about and listen to lying, speaking doctors who changed their minds at the drop of a pen. 
And in the first few weeks, he was very, very uncomfortable because he was talking about things he had nothing, didn't know anything about, and therefore he had to rely on the doctors. And as we've seen since then, one doctor says one thing, one says another. Now, we also know that uh, the new rules on distancing are you have to do two metres, but if you can't do two, you've got to do at least one. But they say for track and trace, you've got to be within two metres for 15 minutes. Uh, you can't make those two statements stand up. It's ridiculous. They didn't say at the beginning anything about um, diabetics had a better, worse chance of surviving, things mm. like that. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't even notice about the care home. So many things were wrong. And it's not the government's fault because the, the real evil in society is the poor little fellows who are the civil service and the local government offices, etc. They don't know any better. No one's telling them any better. And they carry on as they've always had done, doing what the, the superiors tell them to do. And most of the time, they tell them the wrong things. Mm. And if you look at the stuff that comes out of government, the positive gets one line and the negative gets ten. Mm, I can certainly relate to where you're coming from uh, there, Peter. I think there is a tendency to sometimes dwell a little bit too much on the uh, the negative side of things, isn't there? Oh, massively. They were saying about rates, uh, social rate rebates. They gave you three examples where you could get them and ten lines of where, where you couldn't get them. You know, there needs to be a root and branch change in the civil service. And I hope Dominic Cummings is going to do something like that. I don't know what his, you know, his game plan is, but he's supposed to be changing things around. But you've got to get people to make the decisions themselves, not just be told all the time. Mm. Leadership is about making other people make good decisions too. I think you're right. It's about not being the person over the shoulder telling people what to do, but it's about giving people that empowerment to try things for themselves, make the right decisions. And then when they do suffer their own setbacks, about taking ownership of that, embracing it as a learning curve, and then ultimately improving from it, isn't it? Because you're never going to develop otherwise. Exactly, yeah. Um, You can't jump on them because they make a mistake. Because we all make mistakes. But so many people, and especially middle management, I mean, middle management in this country is not that good. And uh, mm. they don't get the best out of people. And a lot of people are just filling in space until they can retire. I think we've talked a bit about the fact that there are a lot of negative spins on certain things, especially those that sort of come out of the uh, the media, Peter. But if we focus on some sort of positive elements that have come out of this sort of quite challenging, quite sensitive time, is there anything that you can take um, that's been a positive for yourself, for Cavendish and Gloucester Properties during this time? Has it maybe brought you a little bit closer together, galvanised you as a business? I'm, I'm very touched by how people have helped me through the through the whole thing. They've been very, very good. I'm very pleased with them. Every one of them. Even the ones that were on furlough. The ones that were on all, all my five of my staff were on furlough. They all got full wages and they were all very keen to come back. I know that a lot of firms have got the opposite and the staff do not want to come back and think they're better off having the having the money from the government and eventually they'll probably get rid of them. 
most, I'm very, very pleased with the way people have behaved. And thinking about now the future, um, particularly over the next sort of 12 to 18 months as we adjust to what is being billed as this new normal, what do you think is on the horizon for you and for Cavendish and Gloucester properties and what do you really hope to achieve? Well, we'd love to get back to normal. Um, we're, we're getting close to it, but uh, I don't believe in the new normal because I've lived it through about three or four recessions. There's a lot of this hot air at the beginning but it amounts to very little. If you look at how society is moving now compared to 10 years ago or 20 years ago, that hasn't changed. The, the press and the, you know, the media love to make these suggestions, and they're not very, not very right. They look at people and see how people are. People are themselves, their families, earning enough money, maybe some ambitions, fulfilling those ambitions. They don't really change. Maybe there's a, around the edges a bit. The families are probably slightly more together, but I'll guarantee the suicides have gone up. I know of connected to our firm at least two suicides, building workers. Um, there'll be more divorces. There'll be more family breakdowns. There'll be possibly more child abuse. On the other hand, there'll be some good things, and people will get together as families better. So it's good and bad. But at the end of the day, you come back in five years' time, society won't be much different. Mm, I mean, new businesses, I suppose. Some businesses will die. You've got to think about property. Wherever you are, whatever time in your life, property is for for people, everybody. Um, But within that, you may have to change. You may have to do more. You know, more two beds or you more bigger gardens, all sorts of things. But then these are just just fads that, you know, we've changed over the years. We've always changed. If if, if you don't change you'll die. And that applies to most most businesses and that's why a lot of businesses do not continue. Because people aren't ready to change or they're too big to change. It's going to be an interesting few months uh, for sure, um, Peter. I think you're absolutely right in uh, what you're saying uh, there. Um, it's going to be, there will be sort of a new landscape on the uh, horizon, but we are as humans creatures of habit. And I see your point in that things might not necessarily be as wholesale in terms of changes as we might expect. No, I think that's absolutely right. Then we learn from a few things, you know. I mean, we can't, listen, my daughter has had a new liver on the National Health about 18 months ago, and I've got no complaints whatsoever. But I do know people who've got massive complaints about the National Health. I know one chap who's come out after the COVID, and he's blind in one eye. And he's told he will get it back eventually, but he hasn't anything but bad to say about the hospital, which is in London. So don't, you know, the, the National Health, is very good at the very complicated things and very bad at the ordinary things. And that needs to change. And there's so many people now scared to go into a hospital because they think they might catch something. There's 2.4 million people not being treated for cancer, I understand, at the moment. Mm, That is absolutely right. Lots of pregnant women are deciding not to have the baby in hospital and have it at home. 
So they're not great supporters of the national health, I wouldn't have thought. But as I say, the top top level, they're, they're fantastic. They're very complicated. It's very true of life, actually. People, many people like the like to be challenged, like the complicated things in life, and leave the rest for other people. Mm. We are just about out of time on the uh, the programme uh, today, Peter, unfortunately, but I have to say it's been very compelling hearing um, your views uh, today on the programme and I think it would actually be fantastic to catch up in future and have you back on the show with us just to see exactly well, what sort of shape this new normal is taking up and we can discuss at that point exactly what has changed in the time between. Yeah, where, where would I be able to listen to this podcast? So, Peter, um, we will be, um, of course, airing the uh, the podcast uh, both on YouTube and uh, Spotify, as well as hopefully on iTunes in the uh, the future as well. Thank you, Peter, for uh, joining us. Um, coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hero, Sir Jeff Hurst. Um, Sir Jeff, during his professional career, scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham, United and Stoke City. But most notably, he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a World Cup competition, following his treble in England's 4-2 victory over West Germany at the Old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff and all of that is of course coming up next. Uh, we're now joined uh, though by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He um, He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think 
you, re- you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and uh, a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and of course uh, a great manager in South Ramsey so to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career of course and, and then your life and that's that's quite purely the case Absolutely. and in those early days um, at West Ham uh, with with a manager obviously like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players, and of course they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peters? I think probably. Well, I was very fortunate to play with the caliber of the players I did. Again, mm-hmm. again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain. Um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters who was a fantastic player and some, as far as Martin's concerned I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved and what a wonderful player he was in terms of inspiring confidence I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me I guess w- would be the captain Bob Moore although he was only uh, about eight months older than me he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier he played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, uh, I do understand clearly in all walks of life, leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident, I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships, and you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction, people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved in my career in those early days with two two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that, but obviously... Uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, playing came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure. When you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a great impact on your <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time at maybe overly strict but at times you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team 
it is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn for you. And you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organization, one thing I have learned, and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alpha, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising they were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Grees in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he, he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I at that stage I, like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Glee's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, if maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think... Mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't. You're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really. Looking back, out, mm. out. so I never really felt. People talk about pressure a lot, and it's there. And people, players talk about. People talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that I'll show. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we have some great players, but 
overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realised there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, The other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while and said, oh, dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and say, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, look, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there, are, there certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It it's too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely... But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we... Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You've you got time. I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a... a at a dinner in the you know, Channel Lines, three or 400 people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honour. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who, who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm-hmm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is, uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to come up with <laughs> well, things no, like I that. Just, but then I again, found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did... Uh, um, and again, if you, put, if you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. Um, <laughs> but th- there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff. I think um, you, you were a young man when see, this happened. When you must have realised that people, teammates, began looking at you for leadership. Um, is that something that occurred to you, or did you just realise that by by quick one way or the other? people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration? Well, possibly. That's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now, quite frankly. That's a new, a new question. Mm. Does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are. There are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and, of course, uh, England fans who... Um, 
I think probably it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it, uh, perhaps. Um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitches, people must realise that that's, that has an influence, how you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field. Surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team laterally. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a in a natural leader? Um, well, a, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think. Some of the outstanding. I think the, the best example about a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but there's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals, or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely, that's, that's absolute leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely—you've mm. got to take him as the first example. But Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they—they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen. We've seen, we've probably ever seen, and I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no Mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, Good answer. (laughs) The straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that, struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership, but uh, companionship and and level-headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? 
Well, I think we were I was very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding, and uh, uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And I'm going back from an earlier earlier question for me that um, all hard-nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially. And that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers. We, we still got on, our wives got on all together all those years later. It didn't just finish after 66. They, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. the... Um, Getting on with each other lasted for, for a long, long, long time, and I wouldn't. And when it, when you put those cat, those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding, and I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was, and I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great oh, players. You- we had some great players, of course. But without the attitude alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the, the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts, but with it. Yes, the word, the, word is team. the word is team. The word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. Uh, together, everyone achieves more. And that, that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, dedication, dedication to the job. Um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation, and I think that's you completely focus. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.